0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.
1: Welcome to the Suffolk Law School's IP Issues Podcast. These are periodic programs on intellectual property issues hosted by Lando and Anastasi. I am Craig Smith, a partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm, Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. You can learn more about our firm at our website, lalaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss several recent decisions by the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Joining me here today is my colleague, Tom McNulty. Tom is a litigator at Lando and Anastasi. He is also a graduate of BU Law School and has a background in chemistry. Tom, welcome to Suffolk Law School's IP Issues Podcast. Thank you. The Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit have issued several big decisions in the past few months. The rulings cover a wide range of issues, including patent invalidity, inventor rights, inducing patent infringement, and inequitable conduct. Why don't we start with the Supreme Court's decision in the I4I versus Microsoft case. In that case, in the I4I case, the Supreme Court confirmed that the Patent Act requires clear and convincing evidence to invalidate a patent and that this heightened standard applies whether or not the evidence was considered by the Patent Office during examination of the patent application. Tom, what was at stake with the I-4-I appeal?
0: Well, in this case, the Supreme Court was considering the, uh, the standards under which invalidity must be proved. And the Patent Act itself uh, says that a patent is presumed valid, but it doesn't uh, specifically state the standard of proof required to invalidate a patent. Why did the
1: court hold that clear and convincing evidence was required to invalidate a patent?
0: Prior to the Patent Act coming into existence, courts had been requiring this clear and convincing standard as the standard. The presumption of validity that comes with a patent was understood to incorporate a clear and convincing evidence, a standard of proof, and the Patent Act itself did not uh, purport to change this standard, so the Supreme Court determined that the standard would remain as it had been. What
1: standard of proof was Microsoft arguing for?
0: Microsoft kind of had two arguments. The first was they were just arguing for a generally a preponderance of the evidence standard, regardless of whether the art had been before the examiner.
1: How does the preponderance of the evidence standard differ from the clear and convincing evidence standard?
0: Well, preponderance of the evidence would just be is is it more likely than not? Is it you know 51% likely that it's uh, invalid as opposed to valid? The clear and convincing, while there's not necessarily a number attached, is a heightened standard. The standard that Microsoft sought to apply would have been an easier way to invalidate a patent.
1: In many litigations, prior art relied upon by a defendant to try to invalidate a patent was never considered by the Patent Office when they were examining the patent application Did the Supreme Court consider applying a different standard of proof in those circumstances?
0: Yes, the court did consider this issue, but they rejected Microsoft's argument that a preponderance standard must at least apply where the evidence before the fact finder was not before the PTO during the examination process. Microsoft had been arguing that the presumption of validity stemmed largely or entirely from uh, the fact that the patent application had been examined, and anything that was not before the examiner, therefore, was not deserving of the presumption of validity. But the Supreme Court rejected this and held that the same standard of proof applies.
1: Now, the Supreme Court made an interesting point relating to what a jury should do when it's considering evidence that was either before the patent office or not before the patent office. And I'm curious, what was the Supreme Court's recommendation for circumstances where a jury is considering a piece of prior art that hasn't previously been considered by the patent office when allowing the patent to be granted.
0: Well, this is sort of the interesting point. The court, while holding that you still must prove by clear and convincing evidence uh, that the patent's invalid, they did endorse the use of a jury instruction that would allow the jury to give more weight to evidence not previously considered by the patent office. When warranted, the jury may be instructed to consider that it is heard evidence that the PTO has not had the opportunity to evaluate before granting the patent.
1: So what would the court be doing with this new type of instruction? This wouldn't change the burden that would be applied in the case, but would just allow the jury to give more weight prior art that hadn't been considered by the patent office
0: that's correct Uh, you know it remains to be seen how this will play out in fact
1: so it sounds like what will likely happen in future litigations is that if you're a defendant and you're putting forward prior art that hasn't been considered by the patent office you're going to be arguing for a jury instruction in line with what the supreme court has recommended could be used
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: Mm -hmm. Are you aware of whether or not any of the model patent jury instructions have yet been modified to address this new recommendation from the Supreme Court?
0: No, I'm not aware that any have yet been modified. Let's move
1: along to the next big case that was decided. This is the Stanford University versus Roche case. What was that issue in the Stanford University case?
0: In this particular case, the court was asked to decide whether the University and Small Business Patent Procedures Act of 1980 which is uh, probably better known as the Bayh-Dole Act, gives contractors the right to any inventions made by their employees when those inventions were not already assigned to the contractor. What is the
1: Bayh-Dole Act?
0: Uh, An act that sets forth the rights between the government and federal contractors, and it it deals with inventions that are made with federal funding. And it allows contractors to keep inventions based on federally funded research. The statute itself says that there is a right to elect to retain title to any invention of the contractor.
1: And was the court trying to interpret the meaning?
0: That particular phrase that I just read, the any invention of the contractor phrase, was the part that they were really looking at.
1: What did the court hold?
0: The court held the Dole Act did not grant such rights to contractors. The premise of this is that patent law has always universally held that the inventor is the person with the rights to his inventions and that that is not supplanted.
1: How did this issue even make its way up to the Supreme Court? What was really going on?
0: In this particular case, you see this surprisingly more often than uh, than I would think. A professor at Stanford had signed an agreement where he agreed to assign his inventions to the university. Part of his work was federally funded and was subject to the Bayh-Dole Act. Subsequent to his working for the university, he signed a different agreement with, with an outside company, Where instead of agreeing to assign, he did hereby assign his inventions to the company. And And it's that that agreement to assign versus actual assignment that sort of is what's driving this case.
1: When you say agreement to assign, are you referring to a contract that says, some point in the future I will assign rights to you, but I'm not currently assigning those rights to you?
0: Yes, yes. The agreements to assign have long been held to not actually constitute an assignment, to require some subsequent actual assignment. So if you agree to assign and then you later assign to a different entity, that different entity will be the one who gets the assignment.
1: And since Stanford had only an agreement to assign from the professor... Is that why it had to rely on an argument relating to the, the Bayh-Dole Act in order to try to get rights to those inventions?
0: Yes, Stanford was trying to use the Bayh-Dole Act sort of as a way around the flaw in their assignment. They looked to the statutory language and hooked on that any invention of the contractor language to say that the Bayh-Dole Act granted them the right to retain title in the invention, whether it had previously been assigned elsewhere.
1: What did the Supreme Court think of Stanford's argument relating to the Bayh-Dole Act?
0: The Supreme Court rejected Stanford's argument, as well as uh, arguments made by the United States government on on Stanford's behalf, that inventions subject to the act vest directly on the government contractor who employs the inventor. They determined that the Bayh-Dole Act does not confer title to federally funded inventions on contractors or authorize contractors to unilaterally take title to those inventions. It simply assures contractors that they may keep title to whatever it is they already have. I thought it
1: was interesting the court also made almost a broader statement about what the Bayh-Dole Act expressly did and sort of noted that it doesn't actually give rights to any inventions to the contractors at all, but specifically allows contractors to retain rights to certain inventions that are based on federally funded research.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like they're reassuring that the government won't swoop in and take it away from them more so than dealing with them and their, and their employees. What do
1: you think the practical implications of this decision are?
0: Well, from a practical perspective, you know, it's an unusual fact pattern that led to this case. I'm sure that people will go back and make sure their agreements are actual assignments instead of agreements to assign. Frankly, they should have been doing that before now anyways. But this particular fact pattern is not likely to come up on a regular basis. It
1: seems like one of the takeaways from this case, even though it wasn't specifically decided by the Supreme Court, is that you really have to make sure that your assignments are giving you the rights that you think you're getting and that you're not just getting an agreement that you will sometime in the future get those rights.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: In terms of looking at their existing assignments, I think the, the court's decision is going to lead more universities to reconsider the types of assignments they've been getting in the past and make sure that their standard agreements actually give them the rights that they thought they were getting as opposed to just giving them a mere agreement to assign. I also think it's interesting that the Supreme Court was never really asked the question on appeal whether or not an agreement to assign would actually constitute an assignment of those rights. And it appeared through some of the language by the court that this is an open question that they haven't been asked yet but might present themselves with in a future case. So it'd be interesting to see whether or not the court does ultimately take up this issue as to whether or not an agreement to assign would constitute an assignment in certain circumstances. Tom, why don't we move on to the next big case. This is Global Tech Appliances versus SEB. In the Global Tech case, the Supreme Court resolved a long-standing ambiguity in the patent statute relating to whether a party who actively induces infringement of a patent must know that the induced acts constitute patent infringement. And in the case, the court held that induced infringement actually requires knowledge that the induced acts constitute patent infringement. The court also separately applied a doctrine of willful blindness to satisfy the knowledge requirement for inducement. Let's take a step back, though, in looking at this opinion and just look at what does the statute actually say about inducement?
0: Well, the patent statute itself, it's 35 U.S.C. Section 271B, says whoever actively induces infringement of a patent shall be liable as an infringer.
1: Now, that particular portion of the statute doesn't really say anything about what the intent of the party has to be. How did the court ultimately end up deciding that there was an intent requirement in the statute?
0: Well, they took a look at the language of the statute, and, and while there's no mention of intent, they inferred that some intent is required from the addition of the adverb actively, that actively whoever actively induces infringement uh, suggests that the inducement must involve the taking of affirmative steps to bring about the desired result. When a person actively induces another to take some action, the inducer obviously knows the action that he or she wishes to bring about.
1: So you actually have to know that you're going to bring about infringement in order to be an inducer of infringement? Yes. And it seems like this type of knowledge is the type of knowledge that the court has held in previous cases relating to contributory infringement, whereby you require some knowledge of the existence of the patent in order for it to be infringed.
0: Is that accurate? Yes, they were explicit that they were essentially taking this standard from the contributory infringement standard.
1: There are certain circumstances where parties have tried to avoid learning about a patent and thus not be aware that there's a patent out there that they could possibly infringe. And then. This particular circumstance, it seems like the Supreme Court was specifically addressing this by making a bit of an exception for induced infringement and saying that a defendant cannot escape liability for induced infringement by willfully avoiding gaining knowledge of the relevant patents. And this seemed to be put in place so that in circumstances where a company is really trying to avoid learning about a patent, they can't escape infringing that patent under those circumstances. One thing that's interesting is the court really went into some detail about what's required to show willful blindness. What are the general requirements for showing willful blindness?
0: Well, the willful blindness is sort of a two-part test. You must show that the defendant first subjectively believes that there's a high probability that a fact exists. Here, the fact would be the existence of a patent. And second, the defendant must take deliberate actions to avoid learning of that fact. A willfully blind defendant, for example, is one who takes deliberate actions to avoid confirming a high probability of wrongdoing and who can almost be said to have actually known the critical facts.
1: Now, is willful blindness a different standard from the one that the Federal Circuit was applying in this particular circumstance?
0: Yes, the Federal Circuit had been applying a deliberate indifference standard. The Supreme Court standard is, is a tougher standard to meet, um, so they've effectively made a finding of inducement a, a bit more difficult to come up with.
1: But just in the circumstances where someone is trying to avoid learning of a patent, is that right? Yes, that's correct. What brought about this particular case? What were the facts that sort of led to this particular decision?
0: This particular decision involved a deep friar. The defendant in this case copied the of steep fryer, they manufactured a knockoff of the steep fryer overseas, sold it to a business partner who in turn sold it into the United States. The defendant knew that the of steep fryer was an innovation in the American market and embodied advanced technology. The defendant therefore uh, must have known there was a high probability that this technology uh, was patented in the United States. I believe they were aware from previous interactions in this case that the uh, plaintiff had an extensive patent portfolio and didn't tend to patent their, their work.
1: So the defendant was actively trying to avoid learning about what might be out there that could challenge their ability to sell a particular product, in this case the deep fryer.
0: That's correct, and sort of further damning for the defendants in this case. They sought a right-to-use opinion from a uh, independent, you know, third-party attorney. Uh, they did not tell this attorney that they had copied the model directly from the patent, from the plaintiff's product.
1: And a right-to-use would be an opinion from attorney saying that, hey, we've looked at the patents in this particular area, and we decided that you can go forward and make this product and sell this product without infringing.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: So in this particular case, did the court apply the willful blindness standard to the defendant?
0: They did, and they found the defendant to be liable for induced infringement.
1: So the acts that the defendant used to try to avoid learning of the patent came back to hurt them because it showed that they were trying to be willfully blind to the patent. Yes, that's correct. Why don't we move on to our next case? This is Therosense versus Beckton Dickinson. What was that issue in the Thurisense case?
0: This is the only of the cases we're discussing today that were not uh, decided at the Supreme Court level. This is a federal circuit case dealing with the standards for proving an equitable conduct. What is inequitable conduct? equitable conduct is a judicially created doctrine designed to punish patent applicants who behave inappropriately during patent prosecution, which is the ex parte process of obtaining a patent.
1: When you say judicially accreted, you mean that it, there's not a statute that deals with it, but it's judge-made law?
0: Yes, that's right. The, one of the key differences with a finding of inequitable conduct is uh, if, if you invalidate a claim in a patent litigation, it's just the claim that's invalid. If you obtain a finding of inequitable conduct, the entire patent is rendered unenforceable, so it's, it's quite a hammer.
1: So if you're found to have inequitable conduct, your entire patent goes away? Yes. It's unenforceable? And
0: potentially related patents.
1: Prior to the Federal Circuit's decision in Theracense, what was the standard required for proving inequitable conduct?
0: Well, prior to Theracense, you needed to determine that a withheld reference was material, and you needed to show that there was intent to deceive the Patent Office. But the standards for doing so were a bit looser than they are now. Prior to a reference was deemed material if it established by itself or in combination with other information a prima facie case of unpatentability of a claim or if it refutes or is inconsistent with position taken by the applicant in either opposing an argument of unpatentability relied on by the office or in asserting an argument of patentability. And the intent prior to TheraSense was treated on sort of a sliding scale basis. The more material the reference, the lower the uh, burden of showing intent. You know, the idea was, you know, something could be so material that they're the inference of an intent to deceive by withholding was so strong that you didn't have to show much beyond the materiality.
1: So if you could show more of one, you might not have to show as much of the other. Exactly, yes. How did the Theracent's decision change the standard for proving inequitable conduct?
0: It changed it in a number of ways, all of them making inequitable conduct harder to show. The first was that uh, the intent and materiality requirements were held to be separate and independent requirements So the sliding scale approach on intent is is no longer in existence. And the second sort of major change is materiality is now but for materiality. You have to show that but for the withholding of that material, the claims would not have issued.
1: And when you say that intent and materiality are separate and independent requirements, does that mean each one has to be proved separately regardless of whether or not there's a strong showing of intent or materiality?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: What does it mean that there's going to be a requirement of but-for materiality.
0: Basically, this means that if the PTO would not have allowed a claim had it been aware of the undisclosed prior art, under those circumstances, you've established but-for materiality. The interesting thing about this is, in making this determination, the Fed Circuit held that district courts should apply the preponderance of the evidence standard and give the claims their broadest reasonable construction. So it effectively will require, at at the litigation stage, two separate claim constructions. Um, kind of the standard infringement invalidity as it's been done, construction, and then separately a broadest reasonable construction along the lines of what a patent examiner gives, the construction a patent examiner gives the claims when examining.
1: So the court would be asked, with respect to an equitable conduct, to view what the claims would have looked like to the patent office in order to determine the scope of those particular claims. That's right and then has to decide whether or not the Patent Office would have considered that prior art to be material under the broader standard?
0: Yes, that's correct. The other thing, regarding intent, the court determined that intent must be proven by clear and convincing evidence that there was a specific intent to deceive the Patent Office. For example, a deliberate decision to withhold information that is known to be material. Is
1: that a stricter standard than the one that had been applied in the past?
0: Yes, like we said, uh, in the past there had been a sliding scale approach. If a piece of information were found to be particularly material, inequitable conduct had been found with lower showings of intent. Now you'll have to show, uh, again, a clear and convincing evidence of specific intent, regardless of how material the reference is. Further, you can still find this intent by inference. I mean, it's an unusual case that you have the smoking gun email that says, by God, we've got to withhold this you know, piece of art or we'll never get our claims allowed. So you can still find it by inference, but the Fed Circuit also specified that the intent to deceive must be the single most reasonable inference to be drawn from the evidence. So So it can't
1: just be one of the reasonable inferences, it's got to be the single most likely inference.
0: Yes, so again, it's it's a more difficult standard.
1: The Federal Circuit seemed particularly concerned about the problem raised with too many parties claiming that there's been inequitable conduct and even related back to earlier cases that have referred to this as a plague, the number of times that defendants have raised an inequitable conduct defense. What is really driving the Federal Circuit to tighten the standard on inequitable conduct?
0: Well, the Federal Circuit has determined that um, the lower standard that had previously been in existence had inadvertently led to unintended consequences, uh, among them increased adjudication cost and complexity, you know, if an equitable conduct is pled in every case, it's another issue that must be dealt with in every case, and that takes time and money. It reduces the likelihood of settlement because the accused infringer always has this potentially big hammer sitting in their bag. It was found to be burdensome to the courts, and it also had uh, unintended consequences uh, with regards to the PTO. The standard was low enough that practitioners felt compelled to produce you know, any and every last thing that they looked at that might relate, however peripherally, to the claims. So examiners were being asked to consider, uh, you know, quite a bit more information than uh, perhaps they had intended. The Federal
1: Circuit recognized an exception to the general requirement of but-for materiality, uh, suggesting that in certain circumstances of egregious misconduct that that could be material regardless of whether it rose to the level of but for materiality. Can you explain what what was going on there?
0: Okay, well, the Federal Circuit identified this exception as as requiring affirmative acts of egregious misconduct, which is, I believe, important to note. They suggested, as an example, the filing of an unmistakably false affidavit. There they determined that that information would be deemed material whether or not it would have resulted in in the claims not being allowed. They were very specific as well that mere non-disclosure of prior art references to the PTO or failure to mention prior art references in an affidavit would not constitute affirmative egregious misconduct.
1: So in those circumstances, you still have to prove but for materiality.
0: Yes, you do. So they really seem to be emphasizing that it has to be something that the uh, applicant affirmatively does to fit into this exception.
1: Going forward, what do you view as the implications of the Therosense decision?
0: Well, there's kind of a few areas that it might have... Have implications. In the litigation realm, one of the open questions is whether or not these new elements, the but for materiality um, and the specific intent, or whether or not you fit within the uh, egregious misconduct exception to but for materiality, whether or not they must be pled, and if so, whether such pleadings must meet the Rule 9 standard that was put forth in the Exigen case. Currently, to plead inequitable conduct, you have to essentially meet the requirements of pleading fraud, you have to plead with specificity. What the prior art withheld reference was, who knew about it, that it was material, that there was a specific intent. You can't really rely on information and belief, um, but you have to come up with something more specific. So, even just getting an inequitable conduct charge into a case now is going to be much more difficult. What about for patent prosecutors?
1: Will the Theracens decision have any impact on how patent prosecutors do their job?
0: Well, there are many that are hoping that it will result in less of a burden on providing information to the PTO and will sort of ease up on both the amount of information they need to disclose and the amount of information the office then has to consider. I would caution, though, that the PTO has yet to amend its rules with regard to what must be disclosed, Um, so at least to comply with the PTO's rules that original materiality standard still applies. I I believe they've indicated that they will take a look at this, but they have not actually done so yet. And then the other thing to bear in mind is that this case is uh, still new enough that it's within the period of time under which uh, they can seek certiorari from the Supreme Court. So it's not quite a settled issue yet. So my advice would be not to make dramatic changes in your disclosure procedures at this time.
1: So there's still a chance that the Supreme Court could weigh in on this particular decision?
0: Yes. Great. Thank you, Tom. Well, that about does it for this
1: edition of Suffolk Law School's IP Issues Podcast. Very special thanks to my guest, Tom McNulty, today. Tom, if someone wants to get more information on this topic, how can they reach you?
0: They can find me at tmcnulty, M-C-N-U-L-T-Y, at lalaw.com.
1: And, of course, the audience can contact me directly at csmith at lalaw.com. Have a great day, everyone.
0: This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.